Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Solomon, Socrates, and Other Sages, Early Ethiopian Philosophy. The 1960s comedian Tom Lehrer devoted one of his songs to the story of Oedipus Rex, the Greek tragic hero who unwittingly killed his own father, married his own mother, and then plucked out his eyes upon discovering what he had done. Lehrer sums up the moral of the story like this. So be sweet and kind to mother, now and then have a chat. Buy her candy or some flowers, or a brand new hat. But maybe you had better let it go at that. These would have been helpful words of wisdom for another Greek hero, a silent sage named Secundus, who, unlike Oedipus, may in fact have been a real person. According to the story of his life, he was sent away as a child to train as a scholar. At one point during his education, he comes across rather less helpful words of wisdom, which state that all women are prostitutes. Shocked by this sweeping statement, Secundus determines to test its truth in the most disturbing way possible. He returns to his home, unrecognizable now that he is an adult with a beard, and through the intermediary of a maid, offers his own mother money to have sex with him. His mother is against the idea at first, but is convinced by the maid that sleeping with this handsome stranger is a good idea. Secundus thus spends the night in his mother's bed, resisting her lust, and going to sleep with his head on her chest. In the morning, responding to her confusion and dismay at his chastity, he reveals his true identity. His mother, filled with horror and shame at what she has done, goes and hangs herself in the garden. Secundus reacts to this tragic turn of events by vowing to be silent from that point onwards, reflecting that it was his tongue that killed his mother. Even when the Roman emperor Hadrian threatens him with death in order to force him to speak, he remains silent. Only when he is given tools to write is he willing to respond to questions and, as a matter of fact, most of the book on Secundus's life and thought is taken up not by the sordid story of how he came to be silent, but by his written answers to a series of philosophical questions posed to him. Why are we troubling you with the story of this Greek philosopher and his disastrous use of the experimental method? Isn't the whole point of this first part of the series to explore Africa, and now that we've left ancient Egypt, primarily sub-Saharan Africa, as an alternative home for philosophy, with traditions separate from and not originating with Greek thought? Well, yes, in part, but things are not that simple. It is common for people to contrast Western and non-Western philosophy, with the former referring to philosophical traditions that are European in origin, ultimately traceable back to ancient Greece, and the latter to the independent traditions that arose in places like China and India. But this has always been a problematic contrast, and not only because it seems rather rude to define all these other traditions negatively as non-Western or non-European. The fact is that Greek philosophy's influence has never been confined to Europe or to territories generally recognized as part of the West. Long-time listeners know that philosophy in the Islamic world was deeply influenced by Greek philosophy, and as we mentioned in the first episode of this series, some of its greatest authors lived in Central Asia while engaging closely with Aristotle. A similar point can be made in the case of the life and maxims of Secundus and several other Greek texts that made their way in ancient, medieval, and early modern times to sub-Saharan Africa, and in particular, to Ethiopia. This is just one part of a much larger story of the diffusion of Greek philosophical literature, a diffusion that was much wider 
and more complex than is usually appreciated. Some of this story, such as the rendering of Greek philosophy into Syriac, Armenian, and Georgian, has recently been told in an episode of this series of podcasts running parallel to this one on the history of Byzantine philosophy. Indeed, with this episode on Ethiopia and the ones to come, we are crossing the streams, as both series explore philosophical thought in the cultural sphere known as Eastern Christianity. So, how did it come about that there were Ethiopian translations of Greek literature? It may be worth noting, first of all, that the word Ethiopia is itself Greek in origin. It means burnt face, and was used by the Greeks to refer to the part of Africa that lay beyond Egypt, full of dark-skinned people and often specifically referred to Nubia, in what is now the south of Egypt and the country of Sudan. As we'll see later, the use of Ethiopia to refer to black Africa in general was common even in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The story we want to tell, though, starts with the spread of Christianity to the Horn of Africa, and in particular to that area known not only as Ethiopia, but also, at least historically, as Abyssinia. It was the land of the Habesha people in what are now the countries of Ethiopia and Eritrea. The coming of Christianity to Africa is often associated with the colonization of Africa in modern times, but it should not be news that Christianity existed in Africa already in antiquity. Just think of figures like Tertullian in what is now Tunisia, or Augustine in what is now Algeria. These thinkers, however, lived in parts of Africa controlled by the Roman Empire, in which Christianity famously started off as a minority religion, often persecuted, and only gradually grew, eventually becoming the sole official faith late in the 4th century. Ethiopia, too, was Christianized in the 4th century, but through a top-down rather than bottom-up process, beginning with the conversion early in the 4th century of King Ezana of Aksum. The kingdom of Aksum had been flourishing in this area for at least a couple of centuries already, but the conversion of the king by Frumentius, a Syrian Christian who ended up in Aksum by happenstance, made Aksum, and thus Ethiopia, one of the very first places in the entire world where Christianity held the status of official religion. We have coins and stones inscribed with crosses dating back to this time, with writing on them in various languages, including Greek and Ge'ez. Ge'ez is an Ethiopian language that is Semitic, meaning that it is in the same family of languages as Arabic and Hebrew. The existence of Semitic languages in this region is thought to be a legacy of much more ancient transmission of culture across the Red Sea from southern Arabia. In any case, by the 5th century, we already have the Bible and liturgy being rendered into Ge'ez, once again from Greek. Coming now to the topic of how Greek philosophical literature was translated into Ge'ez, important to the story is the connection between Ethiopia and a place that is by now familiar to us, Egypt. Frumentius traveled to Alexandria to be consecrated as Archbishop of Ethiopia by Athanasius, last mentioned on this podcast in episode 107 of the original series. Thereafter, it became tradition that the Coptic Church of Egypt would provide Ethiopia with its abuna, or archbishop. Only in the 20th century did they finally take the step of appointing an Ethiopian as head of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Before that, it was always an Egyptian. This ecclesiastical connection facilitated the importation of intellectual products, with an interesting early case being a Greek text called the Physiologos. This book introduces the reader to an array of real and mythological animals, which are described in zoological, ethical, and symbolic terms. 
Some of this material is reminiscent of a text like Aristotle's History of Animals, but the symbolism in the text is fervently Christian. For example, the Ichnoimon, or Egyptian mongoose, is described as being known to sneak into the open mouth of a sleeping crocodile, eat it from the inside, and then burst through its stomach to freedom. Whereas the modern reader will inevitably note that this mongoose is a cuddly version of the creature from the Alien movies, the Physiologus instead remarks that it is like Christ himself, who descended into hell to free certain souls from death. The case of the Physiologus shows how the dissemination of Greek literature sometimes had little or nothing to do with European connections. Claude Sumner, a Canadian scholar who moved to Ethiopia and became the person who has done the most to promote the study of Ethiopian philosophy, tells us that the original Greek version of the Physiologus was almost certainly written in Egypt, specifically in Alexandria, probably in the late 2nd or early 3rd century. The Ethiopic translation may have been accomplished as early as the 5th century, quite likely by an Ethiopian monk also living in Egypt. Sumner even argues that certain aspects of the book recall ancient Egyptian thought and culture. Thus, with this translation of the text from Greek into Ge'ez, we actually have a text moving from one African culture to another. The Physiologus is one of five works that Sumner has identified as forming the basic text of Ethiopian philosophy. Three of these works are translations, deriving ultimately from Greek texts. The Physiologus, as we have just said, was translated directly from Greek in late antiquity. The Life and Maxims of Secundus was, by contrast, translated not directly from the original Greek, but from an Arabic translation of the Greek text, possibly as late as the 15th or 16th century, and the same goes for the Book of Wise Philosophers, which we'll be getting on to later in this episode. Finally, in the 17th century, we have original compositions in Gaiz by Zera Jacob and his disciple Walda Hewat, who we will be discussing next time. Would it be fair to say, though, that before them, there was no original philosophy written in Gaiz, only translations? J.M. Hardin, in his 1926 book, An Introduction to Ethiopic Christian Literature, provides what is still a useful overview of literature in Gaiz, but warns the reader early on that this literature is characterized by a conspicuous defect, namely its want of originality, as it is, for the most part, a literature of translations. To this, we would say, not so fast. When we discuss Zera Jacob and Walda Hewat in the next episode, we'll begin by exploring the 15th and 16th centuries leading up to their time as an era of religious controversies. This era produced a number of writings that ought to be re-examined for their philosophical content and implications. Right now, though, just as we looked at the philosophical themes that may be found in the Epic of Gilgamesh when discussing ancient Mesopotamian thought, we can look for distinctively Ethiopian philosophical material in what can be called the country's national epic, the Kebra Nagast, or Glory of the Kings. This book is best known for telling the story of the meeting of the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon, a story that can be found in the Hebrew Bible, but which is greatly expanded upon in the Kebra Nagast. According to the Kebra Nagast, the queen referred to in the Bible was the Queen of Ethiopia, known as Queen Makeda, and her time with King Solomon resulted in a child who became the first king of Ethiopia, traditionally known as Menelik I. Later kings of Ethiopia, in accordance with the account in the Kebra Nagast, understood themselves as direct descendants of King Solomon. 
This understanding certainly goes back at least as far as 1270, when Yakunu Amlak overthrew the Zagwe dynasty that had been ruling prior to that, and founded the Solomonic dynasty, or as he saw things, restored that dynasty to power. This dynasty ruled Ethiopia until 1974, when Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia, was deposed by the communist Derg regime, dying shortly thereafter. Especially in light of its political significance, the Kevra Nagast easily claims the title of most celebrated work in the Ethiopian literary tradition, at least aside from the translation of the Bible. Which brings us to the question, is the Kevra Nagast too a work of translation? According to the book itself, the answer is yes. Its colophon, or closing statement, identifies the book as a translation from an Arabic version that was in turn based on a Coptic original. Coptic, by the way, is the liturgical language of the Coptic Church, and can thus be seen as the only surviving variety of the ancient Egyptian language, one written using a variation of the Greek alphabet. But it's a matter of scholarly debate whether the information in the colophon is accurate. The scholar Richard Pankhurst has stated flatly, No Coptic or Arabic version has ever come to light, and it may be assumed that the text was in fact originally written in Ge'ez, which seems pretty plausible. Bear in mind that this is not merely a national epic, but a thoroughly nationalistic epic, one that positions Ethiopians as the chosen people of God who have taken over this role from the Jews. It is natural to think that such a work must originally have been written in an Ethiopian tongue. Some have therefore assumed that the Ge'ez text as we have it is really the original version, and we can gather from the colophon that it was completed by 1321 during the rule of the emperor Amdaseon. The truth, though, is almost certainly somewhere between Pankhurst's assumption of complete originality and the colophon's pretense of mere translation. Wendy Belcher, who is currently working on a book on the idea of an African queen of Sheba, and co-authoring a new translation of the Kebra Nagast with Michael Kleiner, tells us that some parts of the book, dealing with the queen, are definitely translated from a pre-existing Arabic text. Intriguingly, Belcher suspects that this Arabic text may not have been Egyptian, but Nubian, and written sometime in the 12th century or earlier. Other parts of the Kebra Nagast, however, depict real historical events involving the kingdom of Aksum, specifically the time in the 6th century that King Caleb of Aksum conquered a significant portion of southern Arabia, stretching Aksumite territory to its largest extent. Interpretation of this material has led one scholar to suppose that there was a version of the Kebra Nagast completed already in the 6th century, making it contemporary to the events described. As for the question of what language the work was written in, it has even been proposed that the work may have been first written in Ge'ez, then translated into Coptic, then translated into Arabic, before finally being translated into Ge'ez again. And indeed, Ge'ez seems the right reaction. Still, whenever its various parts were first composed, and whatever languages may have been involved in this process, it is clear that the Kebra Nagast is a distinctively Ethiopian combination of sources, strikingly original in its own way. But what, if anything, is philosophical about it? Well, if we recall that the Greek word philosophia literally means love of wisdom, then philosophy is arguably one of the book's central themes. Queen Makeda is praised as having already been a very wise ruler, but she travels to see King Solomon precisely because she values wisdom above all else. Before leaving, she gives a speech to her people about the importance of loving wisdom, saying, 
For it is right for us to follow the footprints of wisdom and for the soles of our feet to stand upon the threshold of the gates of wisdom. Let us seek her, and we shall find her. Let us love her, and she will not withdraw herself from us. Let us pursue her, and we shall overtake her. Let us ask, and we shall receive. And let us turn our hearts to her, so that we may never forget her. It's true that wisdom in this text is defined in a fundamentally religious way, as the most valuable wisdom that Makeda receives from Solomon is knowledge of the one true God of the Jews, causing her to abandon her people's traditions of worshipping the sun and other natural elements, or artificial creations. Yet the dialogue between Makeda and Solomon also features general philosophical questions concerning what difference in substance or value there is between a rich monarch like Solomon and a simple laborer, or how the fleeting nature of mortal existence relates to the importance of striving to do good in the world. The gender dynamics in the depiction of Makeda and Solomon are also interesting. Contrary to what Secundus learned about women, it is Makeda who is focused on the pursuit of wisdom, while it is Solomon who clearly wants something more than good conversation. The story of how he comes to have his way with her is arguably, in its own way, as disturbing as what we find in Secundus. Makeda asks Solomon to vow that he will not take her by force, and he agrees, but only on the condition she vow in return not to steal any of his belongings. She laughs at the idea that she would do any such thing. After all, she's already wealthy and came seeking only wisdom, not material things. But she agrees. The way her food is prepared, though, is calculated to leave her very thirsty, and after a bit of sleep, she wakes up parched. When she tries to drink from a jug of water next to Solomon's bed, he catches her hand, points out that she has broken her vow, and gets her to agree that he is therefore released from his vow. Besides love of wisdom, a central theme in the Kebra Nagast is the providential arrangement of events by God, and Solomon's lust and trickery ultimately results in the glory of Ethiopia. That very night, after having his way with Makeda, he has a dream in which a bright sun comes down from the heavens to shine over Israel, but then flies away, going to shine even more brilliantly over Ethiopia. Makeda, after she returns to Ethiopia, gives birth to Menelik. As an adult, he goes to visit his father, who unsuccessfully seeks to convince him to stay in Israel and inherit the kingdom there. Accepting that he must send his son to go rule over Ethiopia, Solomon makes the fateful decision to send along with his son the firstborn sons of all the nobles of Israel. It is at this point that the Kebra Nagast might earn an alternative title, the original raiders of the lost ark. Azaria, son of the high priest Zadok and one of those appointed to leave for Ethiopia, devises a plan to bring with him and his fellow sons of Israel the Ark of the Covenant, that famous chest containing the Ten Commandments, which is referred to in the Kebra Nagast as the Tabernacle of the Law of God, and also as Lady Zion. With angelic support and other forms of divine intervention, the Ark is spirited away and brought to Ethiopia. Its arrival accomplishes the transfer of glory from Israel to Ethiopia. Power is ceremoniously handed over by Makeda to Menelik. Meanwhile, back in Israel, Solomon continues to succumb to lust, as he is tricked by an Egyptian woman into worshipping her pagan gods. By the end of the book, Ethiopia is exalted as the most powerful and blessed kingdom of all, with Rome, that is the Byzantine Empire, in second place. The author writes, Thus hath God made for the king of Ethiopia more glory and grace and majesty than for all the other kings of the earth, 
because of the greatness of Zion, the tabernacle of the law of God, the heavenly Zion. Given the supernatural trappings and setting in ancient history, this exaltation of Ethiopia may seem to be of little contemporary relevance. Yet the work plays a central role in an essay by the Ethiopian philosopher Mese Kebede, The Ethiopian Conception of Time and Modernity, which was written in Amharic, the most widely spoken Ethiopian language today. Ge'ez apparently died out as a commonly spoken language early in the medieval period and ceased to be the main literary language by the 19th century, although it lives on as a liturgical language. Kebede argues that Ethiopia has failed to flourish in recent times, at least in part because of the acceptance, starting in the 20th century, of Eurocentric models of the trajectory of history and the cultural foundations of modernity. He looks back to the Kebra Nagast as a prime example of the fact that, previously, Ethiopia had her own theory of history, one in which it did not simply follow other countries, but stood out as history's leading force. Kebede says that Ethiopia must once again take ownership of history in order to find direction and attain success. The Kebra Nagas vision of the world could, indeed, hardly be less Eurocentric. Yet it is also, of course, a perfect example of how deeply embedded Ethiopian thought has been within a specifically Judeo-Christian framework. How then did Ethiopian thinkers deal with the pagan heritage of the Hellenic world? Here, we can turn to the Book of the Wise Philosophers. The Ge'ez version of this work dates to somewhere around the second decade of the 16th century and is generally attributed to a cleric called Abba Mikhail, an Egyptian. The text is, however, labeled as being by the mouth of Mikhail, which might suggest a collaborative process in which the Egyptian cleric would have recited the text in a form of Arabic understandable to an Ethiopian scribe who rendered it into Ge'ez. As for the Arabic text, Sumner identifies it as a work of translation by Hunayn ibn Ishaq, a Christian Arab based in Baghdad in the 9th century and one of the greatest figures of the Greek-Arabic translation movement, mentioned in episode 122 of the original series. It has also been suggested, though, that Hunayn's text is one of multiple sources for the immediate Arabic predecessor to the Ge'ez text. Those coming to the Book of the Wise Philosophers, expecting recognizable excerpts from Plato's dialogues or Aristotle's treatises, will be disappointed. The book is a collection of sayings and anecdotes, the greatest number of which are attributed to anonymous wise men, some to religious figures, including Solomon, in fact, and some to Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But the sayings ascribed to them have little or no basis in the ancient text through which we know them. Instead, these pagan philosophers are often made to talk of God, sin, and other spiritual matters in a way that is, if not explicitly Christian, at least remarkably congenial from a Christian point of view. A book like this tells us a lot about what the term philosophy has meant to people over the ages. Texts of this sort are easy to memorize, easy to appreciate, and also easy to modify, making them likely to acquire and lose material as they are transmitted, especially across language barriers. If we asked a well-educated resident of 5th century Alexandria, or 10th century Baghdad, or alternatively, a 16th century monk in Ethiopia, what they knew about Empedocles or Plato, they likely would not have responded by mentioning cosmology or the theory of forms. They would probably have quoted from this kind of so-called wisdom literature, offering up thoughtful sayings or witty remarks that were collected and passed down across the centuries like philosophical baseball cards. 
among the most valuable players of all time, of course, is Socrates, and we find some rather amusing gems attributed to him. When he asks his wife why she is weeping, and she says it is because he is going to be killed unjustly, he replies, would you be pleased if I were killed justly? In another manifestation of the historical inaccuracy common to this sort of collection, Socrates is sometimes assigned good lines that we know came from others, probably because of his more famous name. It is Socrates who was made the protagonist of a famous anecdote told about Diogenes the Cynic and Alexander the Great in antiquity, in which a great king finds a philosopher basking in the sun. When the king offers the philosopher whatever he wants, he is simply told to stop blocking the sunlight. In addition to the historical inaccuracies, the text is a collection of disparate materials, so it is not easy to discern any unified set of ideas within its many sayings. Sometimes, the sayings are outright contradictory. We are told to love and to be merciless to our enemies, that the soul depends on the body for its survival, and that it is immortal. Alongside the sort of misogynist remarks familiar from the tale of Secundus, we are more convincingly told that no precious stone is preferable to a good woman, and that a man should respect his wife like an angel. Yet, despite the apparent lack of any overall philosophical message, the Book of the Wise Philosophers is well worth reading, and not only for a sense of how ancient Greek philosophy might have been perceived in 16th century Ethiopia. Some of the sayings display such pithiness or insight that we can't resist quoting them. People are of two types, for and against you. The rejoicing of the rich adds to the poverty of the poor. If you want to know the heart of a man, speak nonsense to him. If he accepts it, he is a fool. And perhaps most memorably, if it were possible to build a house by shouting, a donkey would build two houses a day. Furthermore, it's not quite right to say that there are no consistent themes in the book. One message any reader will take away is a powerful endorsement of asceticism, which again would fit well with its having been transmitted in monastic contexts. Alongside the pagan philosophers, the heroes of some anecdotes are unnamed monks, who, among other things, point to the sky when some travelers ask them for the right way, or advise us to be grateful for a handful of food and always ready to die. The worst attitude one can have is to love this world, since it distracts us from our true destination during what is in fact only a brief sojourn here in the body. By the same token, one should face hardships with stoicism, knowing that this life will be over soon anyway. We mean the reference to stoicism quite seriously. We are here seeing ethical precepts of Hellenistic thought expressing themselves in a Christian context, and in the case of the Ethiopian translation about two millennia after Stoicism first emerged in the 4th century BC. In the next episode, however, we will be moving away from the translation of Greek thought into Gaiz to discuss original philosophical thought in Ethiopia in the early modern period, focusing on two pioneering thinkers of modern African thought, Zira Jacob and Walda Hewat. So, if you do want to do something nice for your mother, here's a relatively safe option. Tell her to listen to the next installment of The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 